listening to the brand new episode of A Love of the Process. I'm your host, Mike Pecci. How are you? What's happening? Come on in, grab a seat, grab a beer, grab one of those Bear Republics out of the cooler there, um, and uh, let's hang out. It's you and me and today's guest. Now, I have to be transparent. I've already recorded my interview with the guest, and I'm a little frustrated. I'm a little frustrated with Zencaster, the website that I use to record things. Zencaster, if you're listening, whatever the fuck you did to that new update has made it impossible for me to do proper interviews over the internet. I had it fail on us five times during this interview, which is the worst because the guest and I start to warm up to each other. We've never met each other before. So it's this process of trying to find things in common. And we do have a lot of stuff in common as directors and as creators. And that's why I was excited to have him on the show today. And it feels like every time we started to get close, the fucking website would crash and I would lose uh, bits and pieces of the interview. So um, I just want to, first off, uh, apologize once again to my guest for today. Um, and uh, just understand that if this show feels a bit pieced together it's because it is there are moments where i have to piece certain aspects together so if there's ever like a severe dropout i'll throw like a music interlude in between them and then we'll make it work and i want to make it work because it was such a great interview um i got to hang out and talk to alan unger today he is the director of the new film bandit with uh josh dumal and mel gibson he is the guy that uh, directed the Uncharted fan film with Nathan Fillion. I know a lot of you nerds out there remember this. It was huge. Um, he did that. He's worked with amazing actors. He even worked with like Stephen Lang, which I didn't get a chance to talk to him about. Stephen Lang was uh, in Don't Breathe. He was also in Avatar. Um, and uh, he is a fellow New York Film Academy alum. So we talk about the difference between going to school in New York and going to school in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, he is a filmmaker from Canada, another Canadian, um, who just did another movie with Mel Gibson, like the dudes that did Fat Man, also in Canada, Mel Gibson. So um, cool stuff, man. Hey, welcome. It's going to be a director on director show today. We're going to get into some of the real life uh, stories behind making a movie. Uh, we're going to get deep into uh, cautionary tales about working with specific producers that end up being scumbags um, and try to help you navigate through uh, the very unstable, crazy world that is attempting to direct and be a director. Um, so if you guys are newcomers here, welcome. We, we keep it real, as real as I can when the fucking website keeps going down but we keep it real um so strap yourselves in thank you everybody for following me on instagram at mike Petchy and following the podcast at in love with the process pod that's in love with the process pod on instagram um there i have been doing contests i have been talking about guests and booking guests and booking folks um i appreciate everything and i have a lot of new followers there right now that have been coming through uh so i'm very excited to keep you guys up to date with what's going on and what's happening with the show and with my work. Um, I don't know when the show's gonna drop, but I'm probably deep in production right now on uh, a bunch of that music video stuff. And hopefully I'm doing my little film that I wanna do right now, Michael, hopefully. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that's on the way. I had a fucking phone call this week too for a job. 
it's, it's great when someone calls you that you haven't talked to in five years and they, they offer you a gig. That's the shit. I always say that, man. At the end of the day, uh, you have to be setting up relationships that you don't expect to pay out for a while. Because then they just, a rainy day shows up and they come through, you know? Um, so that's it. Let's get into the show. I don't want to drag this out too much um, because Alan and I have a lot to talk about. And hopefully uh, in post-production, I've cleaned this up well for us. So strap yourselves in, turn up those noise-canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy the new directing episode of In Love With The Process. Thanks for being on the show, man. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Great. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to get nerdy about movies. I'm excited to talk about your new one, Bandit. And uh, man, you've had a great career so far working with some pretty big legends on camera, dude. Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, I, I sit and I reflect on it and I still feel like I've accomplished nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the way of all of us filmmakers? <laughs> I, I think it is. Yeah. It's the, do, do you, are you another, do you suffer from uh, imposter syndrome like I do often? Um, no, I don't think I suffer from imposter syndrome. I know I belong where I belong. It's more a matter of this need to constantly validate and gratify and, and sort of master perfection, which is impossible. Yeah, it's very um, impossible. It doesn't, it doesn't help that I'm an erotic Jew, so um, I'll yeah. never be satisfied. <laughs> uh, so how did, why movies? Like out of all the things that you can do to tell stories, why'd you pick movies? Oh, I can't remember a time in my life where I wasn't fascinated by st uh, storytelling movies, just the cinema going experience. You know, when I was a kid, my dad had this crazy VHS collection and I just kind of tore through it. And I remember as I was getting older, you know, I'd go to elementary school, eventually high school. I would just, I would just daydream. I would zone out. All I'd want to do is just watch movies. I used to, I used to fake sick in elementary school so I can go home and watch, you know, <laughs> an old Bond movie or, or whatever was sort of there on my dad's shelf. Um, yeah, it's just, I think there's something fascinating about the medium. I think there's something fascinating about this idea where you can, you're given 
let's say 90 to 100 minutes. Yep. And in that time, you have the ability to evoke such a vast array of emotions, uh, comedy, uh, scares, romance, drama. I mean, you, you essentially, it sounds like you sound sociopathic actually, but you can literally sit there <laughs> and determine how the audience is going to feel emotionally. And I think there's just something fascinating about it. Um, so that they feel the way you feel. Dude, I'm the same way. It's like, that's how I got into it too. I do a lot of horror stuff and I, I'm consistently saying I'm an older brother. I grew up scaring the shit out of all my brothers and sisters. And so for me, I love scaring an audience. I love doing the same thing. And I can totally, like, there's a lot, are you the type of director that can't sit and watch a movie with an audience or do you love Mm -hmm. watching it with a crowd? Like my own or a movie? Like your own. Um, yeah, no, I, I love the first communal experience. Uh, I think for all of my films, whether they've been at festivals or they've had premieres, I've always watched the first screening mm-hmm. and then usually by a second or a third screening, uh, I dip out, uh, cause it's just too, it's, it's very nerve wracking. There's a lot of anxiety <laughs> that comes with it, but there's nothing like the communal movie going experience. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. I agree. There's a ton of anxiety that comes with it, but I find that it's the most truthful moment for the work is when you're sitting there with a crowd of strangers and then everything that you were trying to convince yourself was fine or was okay is sticking out like a sore thumb and you're learning lessons like hard lessons in the screenings. That's yeah. Right. Well, it's one of those things where if you wanted them to laugh and they laugh, you can slowly relax. If you wanted them to get emotional and they do, you, you can, you can loosen up even more. Um, I've been mostly fortunate, I would say, thus far in my career that if I've had a film that I've sat in on and screened with an audience, the beats that I want to play generally play. And I'm like, oh, phew, thank God. (laughs) Um, It doesn't always necessarily mean people will love the movie, but um, there's nothing nothing more gratifying and validating than when uh, a joke lands or a moment you know, where people tense up. Uh, it, it's amazing. Yeah, man. Yeah. I think the audience generally forgets the amount of skill and craft that goes into just doing simple beat moments like that. Um, I and- think most of them don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true that a lot of folks don't care. Uh, and, it, you know, it's it's weird, right? Because you, you want them not to care because they're so in, involved with, like, special effects these days and everybody is a critic and everybody's talking about what they think went into making a film. You, you kind of wish it was pre Jurassic park at this point where people, you know, really didn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, to an extent, that's for sure. Yeah. I, I remember being a kid watching Indiana Jones and loving the fuck out of that movie. But at no point was I ever like, Hey, is that a guy that's lives in real life? That's running around and chasing trucks. I was just like, this is Indiana Jones. I'm completely, yeah. in, you know, es- escapism. Yeah, dude, it's a lot harder to have that these days. It's very difficult to take a cynical audience and put them in a moment right now. So, yeah, it's just, it's a weird time for movies. I mean, what's amazing with COVID is that I was loving all the people chirping about how the communal movie going experience would just dissipate. And I was like, fuck you. What are you <laughs> talking about? That's like saying people will never go back to concerts. Yeah. It's the same fucking thing. Yeah, dude. There's no way. Yeah, dude. Completely. I, and I kept, you know, there was that whole period of time where the studios were like, we got to make this fucking 3D and this has to be IMAX. I'm like, just advertise the sound, guys. Because most people are sitting at home with a huge screen TV listening to it off their speaker 
speaker on the back of the television set. Like, just advertise the immersive sound experience. That's why I've always gone to the theater, you know? Yeah. Ah, there's nothing like it. I mean, look, I'll admit that there are movies now that I can safely sit back and watch and say, yeah, that doesn't need to be seen on the big screen. I can appreciate why you want to, but there are definitely films now where I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. I get it. I can watch that at home on a 65, 70-inch screen and be okay with it. Yeah, yeah. But... You know, you don't want them to give up on it. You you still no. want filmmaker like as a filmmaker myself, I craft things specifically for the theater, because it's like this is supposed to be an immersive, lose yourself, the entire world melts around you, and I think most importantly, the audience doesn't have a fucking remote control, so at no point in time can they control the experience at all. Right, and they also shouldn't have their phones on or on them. So I think that makes it even. I'll, I'll admit at home. You know, as I finally have sort of started to get some R and R after Bandit, um, you know, I've been catching up on a lot of TV, but also my phone has just been very busily blowing up. So mm-hmm. I find myself getting distracted, and I smack myself. I'm like, Ah, don't look at your phone. What are you doing? What are you doing? Watch the watch the movie. Watch the show. <laughs> yeah. There's something nice about the theater experience. I mean, unless unless you're an asshole and you're one of those people who sits with literally just scrolling through your phone with the brightness up, pissing off everybody oh. behind you. Oh. Um, that's why I love the Alamo Draft House. Me too. The advertisements that they, they've had. I mean, I, I went to Fantastic Fest a few years ago, and I was just like, "This is this is where cinephiles belong." Yeah, man. There's one out here in Los Angeles. There's one downtown LA that I love. I haven't been to it. I've only been to the one in Austin. Oh, I love it. I love going there. They have like a cool bar and it's, you know, very retro with everything. They actually, I think you can rent VHS from there. Um, but wow. the that whole experience of like, if someone's fucking with you, write it on the card, stick it up and we'll get them out of here. And it's like, yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's glorious. The voicemail advertisement that they did based on that you know, Karen, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. They just brought it back. I just saw them advertise it again. I mean, I think it's been seven or eight years since that, that voicemail went viral and they use it as an advertisement, but it kind of just came back. I saw people sharing it again. Which was, yeah. It's so cool, awesome. man. It's so cool. Well, there's rumors now, right in the industry, especially out here, there are rumors that the theater experience is coming back and, you know, with the success of like top gun, which was, yeah. you know, yeah, man, top gun, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Last year, you know, uh, Shang Chi just you know did very very well, and uh, you know Bond of course didn't perform here the way that they were hoping, but still people went out and flocked to it in the UK. So it, it's very evident that people are motivated to go to the movies, and that they will go to the movies for the right movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I agree with that, man. I really do, and I, I, I I'm happy about it because that sort of escapism and that the ability to just as a moviegoer to go get lost in a movie is important to me. But then as a filmmaker, it's like, can I just take over your life for like 90 minutes? Is that okay? Yeah. Let me just hijack all your emotions. Yeah. I'm you, it's sociopathic. I love it. <laughs> so uh, you went to New York Film Academy. I did too. Where'd you go? You went out here in Los Angeles or did you go to New Burbank. York? Yeah, Burbank. Uh, I went to New York. I was at uh, Union Square in New York City years ago. Uh, so you did the actual New York Film Academy. I did the imposter one. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's the smarter one to go to because you're like right next to fucking Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you know, I spent three different summers there. When I also, well, when did at what point in your life did you go? I went when I was about 21, 21, 22 is when I went. Okay. So I went when I was. 14, but I lied and said I was 15. Holy shit. Uh, 
when I was 14 and I did that for three summers in high school. So I would finish my exams in Toronto. I'd get on a plane and while a lot of my friends would backpack Europe or go on birthright to Israel, I, uh, I said, I'm going to grind, I'm going to hustle. And, uh, you know, it was no summer camp. It was, you know, I'd wake up at seven in the morning. I'd have an, a four hour lecture Yep. 8 a.m. And I'd have another four hour lecture in the afternoon. And uh, I did that five days a week for two months. And then uh, it would get longer. I went for three months, I think, in my final summer. Um, and, you know, started on the back lot at Universal doing a lot of sort of black and white, 16 millimeter, no sound. Uh, of course, I, uh, <laughs> I was... I wanted to make blockbuster stuff, so I'd still find a way. And they were just like, you're not getting the exercise. This is a storytelling one-on-one thing. You need to just learn to tell a story with images. And I was like, no, I want to. It was funny. Um, I, had a, I had a blast. It was great. It was, it was great. They just wrote a nice article about me a couple uh, a couple weeks back. They, they've been, um, yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah, man. I was doing similar stuff, but doing it in New York. So it was a little bit different. I wasn't on the Universal Backlot, which would have been nicer. Um, but yeah, 16 millimeter and, uh, running around with the air reflexes and, uh, cutting everything on, uh, steam bags, like actually yeah. cutting film. Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't do that. The difference was that even with those initial shorts that we did, um, we were at one of the universal buildings where they do a lot of posts. And so we learned on final cut, I don't know, six, seven, maybe I can't remember what it was. Oh, uh, you were just, uh, uh, yeah, you were after me, I think, cause they didn't have final cut yet. Yeah, I went in 2004, uh, 5, and 6. Uh, yeah, I was 2000. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I was early early in the days. But uh, that's cool, man. Yeah, did, did you find that it taught you how to – so for me, my experience with them was less about learning how to be a director or more about learning how to be a producer, believe it or not. And I yeah, I can see that. Um, you know, it's funny. I had professors that were producing professors and directing teachers, casting teachers, writing teachers. Um, I mean, I think I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot there. I learned a lot more than when I went to, to college, you know, film school for four years and actually got a degree. Yeah, um, me too. But I would say that the experience of just being on a set. And when I say a set, I mean, there's four of you in your rotating positions. It taught an appreciation for what a cinematographer does, mm -hmm. you know, what a gaffer does, what, what a boom op does. I mean, that's kind of what it was. We rotated in fours, I think. And so it certainly was eye opening, and it taught some kids that they didn't want to be a director. They wanted to be a DP it taught others that they didn't want to be a, a DP, they wanted to be a director. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a valuable experience, but it taught you to respect all of the other craftsmen uh, working around you, like the boot mob. So, you know, just standing there with, 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 the, with, the, <laughs> with above my head, holding my hands up for like, you know, a whole day. I was like, yeah, I knew I was <laughs> for this. I knew I wasn't going to have for this. Yeah. Um, but it was great. I, was, I had a really great time. And I think it just sort of, I don't even, my, my, here's my thing. It doesn't matter what school you go to. Yep. doesn't matter what trade you're in. There's nothing like the real thing. And you're never going to learn the amount that you're going to learn from being in the trenches. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you're trying to be a salesman or an engineer or a filmmaker, uh, being on a film set, a real film set, seeing how things go down, problem solving, 101, trial by fire, war every day. I mean, that's where you learn. And I think the New York Film Academy did as much as they could to be 
close to that, emulate that. Uh, but you know, it's still sitting in a room for four hours and listening to a teacher talk to you about why, uh, you know, why a director chose a red colored palette is not, it's not really going to get you ready to be. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. And it's like, it's very much an apprentice business. If it, and I feel like the, the most that I've ever learned was on set, was on jobs, was trying to figure things out, was being in that sort of problem and troubleshooting, uh, environment and then having, I don't mentors, but older folks that you're working with and, and sort of examining their like emotional toolkits and how they were digging into it and what their experiences were. And, um, I, you know, you just learn faster that way. I've always found it to be that way. Um, but, uh, so then what, what was next for you? So you went to New York film Academy and then did you write a feature right away and try to get started on a feature? What happened after that? I wrote a couple features on spec and then of course I came back, uh, need to start university. So, um, I got, <laughs> so York university here in, in, in Toronto, it's, it's funny, you know, I think like Malin Ackerman and Rachel McAdams both went there. Um, and directors like Ringo Lamb, funny enough, Hong <laughs> Kong also went there. Um, they rejected me from the film program. <laughs> and of course they're still asking me for donations and money now. Of course they are. Of course, um, of course. But um, yeah, it was one of those things where it was a super competitive program, and there's a two-part process. There's a written, so you have like an essay and a written test, and then there's a, an in-person meeting where you uh, show your portfolio. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, hadn't been on a film set before, it was a it was an artistic portfolio. Maybe it was photography. Maybe it was something demonstrating your artistic. Uh, yeah, so I was thinking to myself, this was a total shoe, and I've got three years worth of content from Universal Studios and Orange County. This is this is easy, and they rejected me, and I was very baffled by it because what they had was they had a film production program and they had a film theory and history program. I don't want to be in film theory and history because I just spent three years doing a lot of that, and I've spent fifteen years of my life doing it, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, studying cinema. So I'm not doing that for four years. And I, I remember walking into this interview and I was like the last interview of the day and they were kind of just already done. And they said, what's your portfolio? Do you have photography? I said, no, I've got short films. I've got a bunch of short films. Here's some highlights. And I can mm -hmm. see the look on their face. This was, you know, when I was, when I was going to the New York film Academy, I wanted to make popcorn. Like I was storyboarding these big action sequences, stunts, special effects. I, I was, I was the first student uh, to, to bring blanks on the back lot as a student at New York Film Academy. And I was just kind of known as like this young Michael Bay wannabe, which, you know, part, partially in insulting, partially complimentary. And uh, they rejected me. And I said, well, I don't understand. And they're like, well, we're looking for students who want to reflect more on identity and be a little bit more expressive in their artistic integrity. I said, oh, you don't want commercial filmmakers. <laughs> got it. Got it. No problem. So I didn't fit in. I didn't belong as soon as I got there. And instead of going to class, I would continue honing the craft, writing on spec, trying to shadow producers, literally just however I could get my foot in the door. And mm -hmm. I would say two years into university, maybe three years in university, I met uh, various different producers who, who read my work and not necessarily took me under their wing, but opened up some doors for me. And uh, I took a year off, went to LA, 
uh, basically put together my first deal to direct my first film. And then I went back and I finished my degree. So my parents and my, my girlfriend who became my wife would be happy just in case I didn't make it. You know? Yeah. Right. There was always the, the back door just in case. Yeah. 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 So that, that, that's kind of how it went. Wow, man. It's pretty cool. It's like, uh, I want to, I, I want to say kind of lucky with a lot of that stuff, but then you've been working really hard. You were putting yourself in the right place at the right time. Well, look, uh, you know, you make your own luck in some ways. Um, but yeah, look, it's it's definitely, you have to be at the right place at the right time to an extent. And, and you have to, you know, meet the right people. And, and then the rest is really up to you. You know, it's, your life is defined by these little moments. And if you're trying to get your foot in the door, you, you can't squander any of them because you don't know how long it's going to be until the next opportunity comes by. You know, I got burned very early in my career as well. I met some shady people as well. Yeah. You know, I, there was a lot of, you know, uh, trials and tribulations. Yeah. Dude, tell me about it. Yes. It's, it seems like that that's baptism by fire for most of us is that you, yeah. you end up stumbling across or stumbling into the arms of, of folks that claim they can do things or people that uh, say that they have the power to do things. And then you spend a lot of time and energy trying to make it happen and then come to find out mm, they're kind of bullshitting you. You know what I mean? Well, and that's why I kind of don't leave it to other people a lot of the time. That's why when I started making movies, I went in for sales meetings. I went in with the distributors. I, I, I look at the budgets. I mean, at this point, you know, I, I produce all of my own stuff. I'm not the producer. I'm not the sole producer by any stretch, nor should I ever be. But um, that's just why I just, you know, the more equipped you are, the more armed you are with, with a wealth of knowledge, nobody can fuck with you. Nobody can lie to you. Nobody can pull a fast one on you. Yeah. Yeah. And you really have to be that way with this because there's so much room for folks to take advantage. There really is. Oh yeah. 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 So what was the, what was the first was tapped out your first feature? Yeah. It's so funny. I keep forgetting they changed the name. Yeah. Tap, well, tapped. Well, I think it's called tapped in Canada and uh, overseas. And I think the States is the only place it's called tapped out. Funny enough. As if, <laughs> as if, as if the, the, the fucking audience wouldn't understand what it was referencing. As a martial arts film. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny. You know, it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't my kind of film. It was one of those things I was in LA I was there for what was AFM. I didn't know it was AFM. I just kind of happened to go down in November. And I was trying to track down this producer I met in Toronto that I had invested some money in so that I could start development on what I thought was going to be my first feature. Yeah. And he turned out to be a total shady criminal who's still, I believe, there. I don't think he could come back to Canada. He's got like a warrant out for his arrest. Oh, my God. And I was there staying with him so I could keep an eye on him. And he had this house party for the Pacific, which was that mini series follow up to band of brothers. Mm -hmm. And at this party, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, you've got John Barenthal there. You've got, um, Joshua Bitten, you've got, uh, Scott Gidd, you got a lot of these really great sort of character actors. And I met this young guy who happened to be from Canada as well. And I said, what are you doing out here? He said, well, I came out here to pursue an acting career, but you know, I'm going to be doing a lot of producing, uh, trying to make a movie and I'm training, you know, Will Smith's kid from the karate kid, which comes out next year. <laughs> um, anyway, he was this crafty, smart guy. And he said that he had some investors that, that would be interested in investing in film. And I said, you know, I want to direct, I want to direct. And, and he said, well, look, you know, I've got this story that I want to tell about MMA because UFC is blowing up and MMA is huge. And I want to do something that's sort of a tribute to the karate kid from the eighties. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll pay you to write it. 
And I said, well, it's not my kind of thing, but uh, I'll write it for free. Very stupid decision on my part. I'll write it for free if you let me direct it. <laughs> and that's what happened. And so I'd say about 10 or 11 months later, came back to Canada to a small town called London. And, um, you know, I think we had $750,000 to go make this movie. I was, I was 23 Mm -hmm. and, uh, we went off and we did it. And, um, you know, the movie sold the lion's gate, had a VOD and DVD deal. And, uh, and then that was it. And I started to get calls from managers, Mm -hmm. other producers and sales companies, production companies that were interested in talking. And it kind of just sort of went from there. Yeah. That was, uh, uh, Michael Bean was in that, right? You worked with him? Yeah, that was funny. I mean, it was one of those things where we only had such a finite amount of money. And I knew that Michael was doing a lot of these really cool genre independent films. And I was like, well, look, this isn't really a genre film. A lot of people are going to think it's a genre film, but it's actually kind of a, a drama, like this action drama. And Michael was great. And then we had Martin Cove, who was amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we had, you know, the then UFC middleweight champion Anderson Silva, Leo Machida, Christoph Szczynski. It was cool. It was, it was cool. And you know, the movie was one of those things where it was nothing special. I mean, it was fine. It was perfectly fine. But I think because the way Lionsgate had been advertising it, it's part mm-hmm. of this slate of really shitty, grungy, low-budget MMA movies. I think a lot of people. <laughs> wrote it off and didn't want to see it. And then when VVS released it in Canada and it had a completely different marketing campaign, different poster, different trailer, people were like, Oh, this is sort of like a coming of age revenge drama. It's like karate kid meets Batman begins. And, you know, so people saw it and, you know, it was, it was, it was somewhat warmly received. And 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 at least sort of people that approached me after were like, Oh, we saw what you did with no money and with a lot of, you know, your hands tied behind your back. Sure. And it sort of, yeah, it opened up these doors, but it was a great experience. And, you know, Michael Bean was the first actor I I worked with essentially. How was he? How was he to work with? He was great. You know, he had, um, he had just, I think recovered from an accident, an injury of some kind. I'm not sure what it was. He, he was putting up a basketball net for his son and he fell and hit his head. And uh, he was recovering from this, head injury, but I also believe that he might've had a heart attack. He might've had a stroke. I can't remember. Hmm. Anyway, he, he was great though. I mean, we flew to LA at the time to meet. He trained a little bit with a karate instructor just so that he could be able to mimic a lot of the movement and behavior that his character would need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember we sort of, we didn't butt heads, but there was a little bit of tension at times and I'll never I'll never forget, you know, after the movie came out, he called me because I think he had done a couple other movies at that time that he wasn't really happy with. And he called me and he said, uh, I just want to say that I'm actually impressed with you. and I'm proud of you. And I think you did a really good job and you made me look really good. And, mm. you know, um, hats off to you. So I thought that was that was really cool of him. That's very cool of him, dude. That's very cool. Yeah. It, was, it was nice. Um, another thing that we have in common besides going to New York film Academy is that we've both done fan films. So yeah, you did the uncharted fan film and then I did a Punisher fan film that was immediately squashed by the, the Disney giant. 
that <laughs> that came so through. Dirty, so not dirty laundry. Then. Yeah, no. So I I was doing one uh, before dirty laundry, and then we was so so stupid. I heard about this actually. Yeah, it was the dead can't be distracted. Is what we called it. It was based on. A series of comics from Greg Rucka that was really great. That was kind of the best Punisher run that I had read where um, uh, a woman, uh, Marine, also had her family killed. And so she sort of got into the ranks with the Punisher and they teamed up and they were doing stuff. And so we were doing a fan film on that. And I had cut a trailer and some posters and released them, teased them out into the Internet and then Disney was like, I, I still have the letter somewhere where they go, this looks too good. It looks like one of our movies. You cannot do this. Yeah, I think I remember this. That's so funny. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So um, there's a danger. A there's a danger to doing fan films. You did one for Uncharted. Did you run into any of that or did they not give a shit? Uh, I did not run into that. Lucky. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get into why. Uh-huh. Um, I cannot get into why, but uh, I, I, I was fortunate. Be in that situation. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, can you talk about making the movie? Was it was it fun to make? Was it interesting? Yeah, I mean, it came it came at a time where I had made two movies, I had produced three. Things were you know looking up, and I was gearing up for this film that was going to star Frank Grillo, Gary Oldman, Carrie Ann Moss, Tyler Posey, wow. Cat Grant was killer cast. Wow. And then Gary Oldman was replaced by Andy Garcia, and it was still a killer cast. Mm -hmm. And we were gearing up to shoot in Toronto. And my producer, Andrew Gunn, had just finished at Disney. He was gearing up for Cruella. And uh, I was working with the studio producer for the first time. I was in the Director's Guild. I had eight weeks of prep. I was I had an office. I catered lunches. It was the real deal, making real money. Mm -hmm. And then we were about four days away from shooting and the local producer who was dealing with the financing, the debt, sales, everything, uh, pulled the plug on the movie. Wow. wow. And what happened was it turned out that this guy had all these amazing producing credits, but they came to him by way of this sort of, exit agreement, this golden parachute, he was booted out of the company and they gave him these retroactive credits as, a, as an executive producer. Uh, and then I found out later that his, his only job on that film was to procure product placement. You know? <laughs> and so, you know, there were a lot of stories back and forth about how the sales company defaulted. It was him. It was them. It was him. It was them. I don't know. To this day, I don't know the story. All I know is that uh, money was withdrawn, taken out. It was gone. They shut the movie down. Uh, I was I was devastated. I was I was gutted, completely gutted. You had to be okay. Hold on, stop here for a sec, because you had to have been devastated. And this this show, as we talk about stuff, that's what this show is all about: is actually being real about this business. Because anything that we hear about, it's always like, yeah, I had this fucking idea, and everything fell into place, and we made this amazing thing. No, this this business is about a series of like devastations, really, and then how you yeah, pull your shit Howard. together. Isn't that what Ron Howard says? He has this. I forget what the line is, but he has something about every time you make something, your heart is broken. Or every time you try to make something, your heart's just going to get broken. Yeah, man. Yeah. So this must have come out of nowhere, hearing that stuff. Yeah, this was this was horrible. This was really, really devastating. I remember Frank Grillo called me 
And uh, I had just been at his house a couple weeks before watching the, the Floyd Mayweather Conor McGregor boxing match. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "Hey, I know this has nothing to do with you, but I haven't gotten any of my money yet. Like, is there money problems on this movie?" And I said, "No, I don't think there's money problems. It's the same as every movie. I do a tech scout, and I get told, hey, can you peel back the special effect there? Can you dial this down? Can you dial this down?' I mean, it's, it doesn't matter what your budget level is. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So then it just sort of looked like." the producer had put a pause on everything because he wasn't sure how to get the bond done and all the other closing costs figured out. And so his advisor, his legal advisor, who was not an entertainment lawyer, but rather a part-time real estate agent, I think it was, <laughs> had advised him to just pull the plug on the movie. And I was like, look, and I say this with caution, mm-hmm. anyone who's a producer in the indie space knows that a lot of the time you don't have all the money when you start. You kind of just have to start and roll the dice and it's really fucked up. But yeah. usually nine times out of 10, I guess you figure it out. You know, that's just, you know that you have a bridge loan coming. It's late, but it's coming. Yeah. You have this, it's coming, but it's going to be a bit like It happens all the time. I've never been on a film where that didn't happen. I've never been on a film where all the money was there. Yeah. So it just seemed like they did not know what to do with that. They just didn't know what to do with the pieces. So they just thought it would be easier to pull the plug. Yeah. And I had already booked myself a congratulatory rap gift to St. Lucia. <laughs> and we were supposed to rap right before my birthday, right before Christmas break. And so here I am. I'm probably at the lowest point I've been. And I go to St. Lucia with my fiance, who's now my wife. Yeah. And there's nothing she can do. She, I, I'm, I'm just bummed. I'm miserable. And... I was like, shit, what am I going to do when I go back to Los Angeles? Because I go two, three times a year and it's, oh, we can't wait to see the film. How did the, how did the shoot go? We see some footage. Yeah. Nobody knows the movie's dead. Word will get out eventually, but no one knows the movie's dead. So what am I going to do? I need a bait and switch. I, I, nobody wants to sit and hear a sob story about why something didn't work. They only want to know why something succeeded. So I, I figured, look, it's been a while since I'd seen anybody do a really great fan film in the vein of what Adi Shankar had done with, you know, Punisher, Power mm-hmm. did it with, you know, Mortal Kombat. So my whole thing was as a video gamer, I was like, why has nobody ever, I mean, rhetorically, why has no one ever made a, an adaptation with the actual actor or actress that everybody wants to see? And of course, it's because there's only five men and five women who can greenlight a movie in a certain budget. So, sure. you know, it's art, it's art versus commerce. Nobody's going to put Nathan Fillion in a $40 million, $50 million theatrical release, unfortunately. And so I called my friend and I said, listen, hey, I know you don't need pitch on this idea. And he said, this is the stupidest thing. Why would Nathan Fillion work for free on a short film? That's, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So I basically wrote him his essay on why he should listen and get in touch with Nathan. Mm-hmm. So he did, begrudgingly. And then Nathan says, I'm very interested. Can we have dinner? So I flew to LA. I had dinner with Nathan. And I basically gave him this very impassioned speech and pitched him. Uh, subsequently sold him on why we should go do this. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the movie was in development hell. Maybe Tom Holland was going to play him. Uh, Carnahan was out. Sean Levy was in. It was just sort of 10 years now, I think, at this point, the movie had been, you know, going through development. Yeah. And uh, so we went off, we did it in secret, and uh, we launched it at Comic-Con, and it, it blew up. It broke the internet. It was insane. It was 
like nothing. I, I mean, I, it's, you have every idea in your mind and this dream of what it could be to feel some modern amount of success, but mm-hmm. the way it caught fire and the way that I had Buzzfeed and everyone calling me and going to Comic-Con and doing the press junk and being on the variety of the IMDb, Kevin Smith, it was, it was a dream come true. It was crazy. Dude, that's uh, uh, it's so great to hear that you had that experience. That was the experience I was assuming was going to happen <laughs> right. before they came in and fucking gave me the old Disney acts. But yeah, man, it's 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 crazy how there was a period in time because that was like right before really Marvel was really ramping up everything and, and casting really big names and and going through that process. And so the audience was really ravenous for it. And, you know, you putting Nathan in that role was genius because, you know, of all of his firefight plans, all of his. And I wasn't lost on Nathan. Nathan knew. Nathan knew what it meant to pop culture, to the zeitgeist, to the world. And he was obsessed with the character as well. He wanted to be his own Indiana Jones. I mean, what actor doesn't? Yeah. And so Nathan was game. He got into crazy shape for it. Um, he had the rookie pilot going at the same time. Mm-hmm. So he, he got really slim and cut and he came in for a couple of days of stunt rehearsals and fight choreography. And I mean, he really, he really gave it his all. Um, and, uh, you know, the results speak for themselves to this day. It's still, the gift that keeps on giving it's that's it's one of these things where I remember walking into a, a Starbucks and hearing the barista talking about it. I remember going to the bank before going to Comic-Con that week and uh bank manager says, I haven't seen you in a minute. Where you been? I said, oh, I just did this thing. It came out yesterday. And one of the bank tellers popped up and said, Oh my God, was that you Nathan Fillion? It was everywhere. I mean, everybody's, everybody knows it. Everybody's seen it. It's, it's just one of those things that you always hope could happen for your career. Mm-hmm. If you even get into the business mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I changed representation. I kind of shifted my game plan a little bit and I used that momentum to sort of spring into action on the kinds of movies that I really wanted to make that, you know, I just never, you do your first movie and then you do the couch and water bottle tour. And it's sort of like, yeah, good for you. You're not ready yet. We'll see what you, we'll see what you do next. And then you do another one and it's like, okay, we just need to see something a little bit more from you, you know? And it's always trying to get that validation and trying to prove yourself and, and, and try to, to, to tell the world that you're capable of doing something. And you're always going to have those doubters. And then, of course, they come out of the woodwork when they see that you've done something. Time to take a break. Here's a good spot to do some ad reads. Um, first up, our good friends over at Puget Systems. I'm excited. I'm going to be getting my new Puget System by the end of October, which I'm pumped about. These guys are building me a new double secret editing machine, and I'm fucking excited about it. But if you're a filmmaker out there and you want to uh, buy a brand new editor or an edit machine, why not get yourself a PC? I know some of you are like, PCs, why PC? Well, because they're upgradable. It's a tool that I can specifically craft to work for the software that I'm using. If you go to PugetSystems.com, they can, you can choose a system starting there by just going and saying, hey, I'm going to be using Premiere or I'm going to be using uh, like a CAD drawing software. Or I'm going to be using 3D software. They will suggest a baseline package, but then they want to talk to you. 
They love to talk to their clients. They love to talk to the artists that work with them and work with them specifically like a real person, not like a bot on a website. And they'll build you a custom PC. And a PC that A, will run like lightning, which is important. Uh, B, will always be able to be upgradable. And then C, they'll give you all of their knowledge from beta testing, benchmark testing, all this different hardware that exists on the marketplace, running it hard with the software that exists, different versions of the software, they have all the answers. Go to PugetSystems.com, build yourself the PC that will change your life, okay? Also supporting the show are friends over at Jambox, jambox.io. I say this every time you hear me on the show. If you want to change your quality of work, it's about music, it's about sound, it's about garbage trucks. Man, today is a fucking bitch of a day for an episode. I'll tell you that. Why is there a garbage truck out there? What fucking day is it? It's Tuesday. Why are you out there? I, I just, today is one of those days. Um, so if you go to jambox.io, they are the best place for licensed music. This is music that I would put on my playlist on Spotify. This is stuff, top of the line tracks that are specifically written for this website, specifically written for for these genres. So like if you're looking for action sounds, if you're looking for dramatic sounds, if you're looking for 80s hip hop, if you're looking for new retro wave, there are some great fucking artists up there like Tonks, these really amazing producers uh, that have the talent to swap genres and do top level uh, award-winning tracks. So go to jambox.io right now and just listen to their music. Check out their subscription plans. You guys have heard me talk about them on the show. If you sign up for a subscription plan before October 15th, they are giving 20% off to our listeners. If you use a uh, promo code ILWP20, like I said, 20% off their subscription plans. They're super affordable. Um, and if you look at it this way, if you get a commercial and they come to you and they say, hey, we've only got a couple hundred bucks for music licensing, use that money and buy a whole year on Jambox. It's great. It's awesome. I feel like Terminator, it's like right now, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to show up in a ball of electric fire and then burn away half of the rear of that garbage truck. Head to jambox.io right now and check it out. I'm telling you, it's going to change your work. It changed mine. I'm actually going to be going there this week. I've got two projects that I have to edit, and I'm going to be finding those tracks on Jambox. Um, let's see. Indie Pro. If you guys are in the market for batteries, let's say that you have a Blackmagic camera. Let's say that you have a Sony or a Canon or Panasonic, um, and you want a better power source. You want uh, gold mount or V-mount batteries that can quickly charge and carry a much bigger charge than whatever uh, small battery that comes with that camera. Uh, go check out Indie Pro. If you go to IndieProTools.com, uh, there you can find all sorts of professional V-mount, gold mount batteries and chargers, battery adapter plates, regulation cables, and many other unique power accessories. Uh, you guys have seen it. We're using them on all our stuff. I've got these Indie Pro things on all my cameras, on my monitors. Um, I love them. They just sent me a bunch more batteries, and I'm excited about it. If you go to IndieProTools.com and use the promo code LOVE20 at checkout, you can receive a discount, 20% off your entire first order from IndieProTools.com uh, with the 
the uh, promo code love 20 let's see who else am i missing here um i think that's it that's all we're going to do for the ad reads today as always make sure you head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com if you're looking for more from your episodes if you want to check out supplemental material if you want to surf for other directors episodes we reference the boys that directed fat man with mel gibson you can go listen to the episode uh, with the Nelms Brothers. If you head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and then click on the director's episodes, it's all there, man. We keep it simple for you. Keep it safe. Keep it simple. Is it safe? I was just watching the Lord of the Rings stuff. I don't know if you guys saw my video that I posted on Instagram at Mike Petchy, where I sort of break down the issues that I have with streaming shows and the difference between streaming shows and movies. That's on my web, on Instagram right now. Anyway, that's it. Let's get back into the interview. So the the fan film gave you the opportunity to uh, jumpstart your career. Like, dude, there's a sense of excitement I have for you hearing this stuff because I really fucking wanted that to happen too. <laughs> like, man, I'm happy for you that that worked. Well, at least, you know, it's funny. It's funny. You got something I don't. You got a lot more followers and you have a fucking blue check mark that nobody seems to be able to verify me on. So you have that. <laughs> well, the funny thing about The Punisher is I still, it became the uh, the punk rock album that I wasn't allowed to release. So I still have people writing to me consistently asking, oh, like, awesome. can you send me it? Can you send me this stuff? And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> so it's great. And at this point, I don't want it to release because it will never live up to the hype. It's that- like the Wu-Tang Clan album that fucking Pharma Bros, uh, Pharma Bros Screlly Yes. Locked. That was locked in a vault. Yes. Yes. Oh, man. It's so cool. Um, oh, oh, fuck you. I'm sorry, dude. This website is pissing me off this morning and it's the worst one. Hold on a second. Wait. Hello. God damn it. Oh, really? Oh, fuck you, Zencaster. Seriously. Reboot. You there, brother? I'm here. (laughs) I'm sorry, man. This is like never happened this way. And this, it's because this, let me explain it. It's because this website, I'm I'm easy, man. Yeah. This website decided that it wants to do transcriptions at the same time. And it's just, it's running too much. Uh, Hold on. This should be fine. Anyway. Yeah. So it's the punk rock album that no one can hear. Um, well, let's talk a bit about, so fast forward to Bandit. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what was this experience like? This seems to be the largest production that you've done yet. Is that is that the case? Yeah, it was a $10 million movie. Um, and, uh, you know, you always want to, you always want to sort of up the ante every, every time you go around. So uh, I got this script from my agent at the time. And this was right when I was prepping that Frank Grillo film that, that didn't happen. So this was before Uncharted. Oh, wow. 
I got the script. This is about four and a half years ago. I got the script and I read it. I loved it. And I said, this is a Canadian catch me if you can. This is great. Yeah. It's, it's popcorn. It's fun. It's, it's the antithesis of what I'm going to become known for. If I start saying yes to all these low budget action movies, I don't want to do. Yeah. And as a Canadian, Canada is never Canada. It's always, you know, studios are coming here and using Toronto for New York and this and that. And, uh, I was just really taken by the, the heart, the levity, the characters, the, the fact that it's all true. This is sort of truth is stranger than fiction element there that just is too crazy that it has to be told. So we, we were trying to figure out where to set it up and how to put this movie together because it's big, you know, and it read as like a $25 million movie. Yeah. Way to do that in Canada is if you get the help of telefilm and all these other subsidies, and, you know, because the whole pre-sale model, oh my God, he's gone again. I'm not even talking to myself. And you're back. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll just keep talking if I keep see talking, brother. Yeah, just keep going with it. I'm so fucking sorry. We'll make it through this. <laughs> so, you know, it read as a $25 million movie, and you just you can't do that without telephone or the subsidies. The pre-sale model's tough. You know, you've got to get certain actors. They're only worth a certain amount. Yeah. It, it's like Moneyball. So we set up the project with a producer in Montreal who had just done a movie that was kind of similar about an investigative journalist with Josh Hartnett. It's like about an $8 million movie. Really, really solid film called Target Number One. Um, although I can't remember what they called it in the States. It's, it's funny how it's like happened with Tapped Out. It's tapped here, it's tapped out there. Um, I think it was Gut Instinct, Most Wanted, Target Number One. There's like three names in the movie. Anyway, it was a really solid film. And the producer really understood these kind of biopics and these true crime dramas. Nice. And uh, so we set it up, we start developing it, and we go out to cast. Josh Dumel jumps on, loves it, and COVID hits. That's, oh, fuck, dude. <laughs> And I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the, the whole world is at a standstill. Yeah. So a few months goes by, everyone's starting to pick up again. There's all the COVID protocols and the bullshit making movies. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to be tougher. And then we don't get the support from anyone in Canada. We don't get any uh, subsidies. We don't get any grants. Oh. And it's absurd because I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is a true story about a guy who has the, the record for the most robberies in Canadian history. Yep. I've never seen a Canadian film that plays Canada as much as this with the with the big titles saying Vancouver, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, Edmond. Like, I've never seen that before in a Canadian film with, with this kind of commercial capability. Mm-hmm. So that's one problem. The other problem is COVID is forcing anybody who is a foreign national to, to sit in a hotel for 14 days in quarantine. Oh, it's crazy. So, so if you are an actor, let's say you're Josh, you work, you run a show for 30 days. Okay, sure, but it's still inconvenient. Yeah. Now, try to be Mel Gibson working for a week. Yeah. Or try to be an actor on a TV show coming in for a one-day cameo on Suits or whatever it is. Yeah. It's not a great sell to say, hey, you're going to sit by yourself in a hotel longer than the amount of time you're actually going to be working. Yeah. And it's an incredible expense for the production to have to pay per diem meals, yeah. accommodations for all of that. Yeah. So we get a call and it's like, look, you want to make the movie, you got to go to the States and make it work. So 
the Canadian producer could no longer be the primary producer because, of course, insurance and as a production company, as a Canadian, you can't be doing that in the States. So we paired up with a group of producers from New York who were really good at what they did and, and understood this kind of model. And they said, look, the only way this is going to work with tax credits, we've got to go to Georgia. Mm. So we go down to Georgia, and I've never been to Georgia. <laughs> and here I am trying to recreate 1980s Canada. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? <laughs> and it was it was insane. It was the most insane experience. Like I don't even know how to describe it. It was you know, we went from a 32 day shoot to a 20 day shoot at one point. Wow. And we had 200 scenes. We had 95 sets of locations and no idea how we were going to do it. <laughs> and somehow by some act of God, we all just kicked it into high gear. The cast were incredible. The art department, killed it in recreating Canada, mm. period Canada in modern day Georgia. So cool. I knew the script off by heart. I knew every scene number. I knew every word, which allowed me to be in a position to reverse engineer, revise, adapt, improvise, just be ready for anything. Yeah. Trying to understand what is the crux of the scene? What do I need to accomplish in any given day? And uh, we ended up having 21 days and then we went to LA for another day of pickups on an airplane. And then I was in Ottawa uh, at the end of last year to actually film as much as I could in Canada to get the actual footage of Ottawa. Right, uh, right, right, right. But it was, uh, it was bonkers. It was truly, truly bonkers. I mean, and, and everything that could go wrong went wrong. You know, Nestor Carbonell tore his Achilles tendon so he couldn't walk. Oh, my God. Um, Alicia Cutler found out she was pregnant while it was happening, which gave her morning sickness. She, she, and unbeknownst to me, though, I mean, she's such a trooper and she just held it together and it was so run and gun. And then we would lose actors, we would lose extras, we would lose locations. I would show up to a huge climactic scene at a location I had never seen before. I had never scouted. Oh my before. God, what a nightmare. And I, to, <laughs> and I had to come up with it on the spot. Oh my God. And that, and then we had three big production unit moves because we were shooting across three different Southern cities to try to do, to try to replicate all these American um, Canadian cities. So it, it was, it was, it was nuts. It was, yeah, it was, it was absolutely nuts. We were, we were doing 50 setups a day and sometimes as much as 70 setups a day. That's crazy, dude. Uh, with three units. And, and Nestor Carbonell, because he's a TV director, it got to the point where all of his subplot storyline, I was like, look, okay, today you guys are in the surveillance van, but we're in the house. So I'll be in the house with Josh and Alicia. And you'll be out here with sweat in the second unit. And I'm going to run in and out of the house. And you're going to call action. I'll be there. And then I'll call cut. And then I'll run back in the house. And then we were in an old abandoned courthouse that doubled for nine different sets, I think. We had... Their apartment, we had uh, the police captain's office, we had the courtroom, we had the other courtroom, we had the jail, we had a plethora of sets inside this studio, essentially. Uh -huh. And at one point, I would call cut downstairs in the courtroom, and then you'd hear on walkies, Alan's coming up, and then I'd run up, call action, call cut, and then run to the third unit, which was in another set. And I'd literally be directing three units at once sometimes. It got to the point where... We had a sequence where uh, Josh is robbing a bank in the montage in the blonde wig, uh -huh. and I had a golf cart, and I drove the golf cart from the bank 
to the house where Nestor Carbonell and Sweden Temple were, uh, the first scene where they meet and decide to do a task force, I was driving a golf cart back and forth and back and forth, directing these units simultaneously. That's it crazy. Was, yeah, it was, it was, it was like nothing I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. Insane, man. Insane. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it, the energy shows that's for sure. I mean, it is very much a high energy piece. And so yeah. that vibe apparently seeped into the footage. <laughs> I don't know. That's something I had to. <laughs> and you got to work with another legend. You got to work with Mel Gibson on that. How was that process? Yeah. I've knocked off my uh, lethal weapon duel bucket list. I've done, I've, I've now managed to get Danny Glover to say I'm too old for this shit on camera. And I got Mel Gibson to make fun of Voyage Merge. I think I'm good. <laughs> uh, Mel is great. You know, and, and the crazy thing is that Mel has this uncanny resemblance to the real Tommy K. Uh, the only difference is the real Tommy K is about hundred pounds heavier. And it's called the fat man. Uh, and what's funny is that Mel made a movie in Ottawa called fat. Man. I know I had the guys on the show. Man. I know the dudes that did that. Yeah. yeah it's so funny. Um, so there's another Ottawa connection, right? Yeah. But uh, Mel's great. I mean, from our very first conversation, I think he was fascinated and enamored by the story and, and the sort of, again, the truth being stranger than fiction. And I think that he liked that he could draw from a real, real source, you know, real source material as well. He could watch the documentaries. He could sort of feed off of all of that. And uh, he was wonderful. He was patient. He was, he was professional. He was funny. He was kind. He had some great improv. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't say I can't say enough about. Him. Yeah, I mean, were you ever intimidated? I mean, he's a fucking Academy Award winning director. Were you ever intimidated yeah, having him on set? It's so funny. Everybody asked me if I was intimidated. You know, it was definitely intimidating. The thought of it was intimidating because it's like, oh man, he's going to see the way that I'm setting up a light a shot. He's going to jump in and say, "Hey, I think you should do this instead." Never. Not he. He just. I want to say he stayed in his lane, but that's not even an appropriate way to, yeah, to yeah. describe it. I mean, I think. I earned his trust very early on and we built the camaraderie and uh, he was along for the ride. And, uh, and I know that he's, uh, he's very happy with the film. Uh, he's gone out, he's done some interviews, which he doesn't really do a lot for movies anymore, mm -hmm. especially a lot of the ones he's done in the last few years. So he's been out there. He's promoted the movie a little bit. I know he's happy and he's moved by it. And uh, it was great. That's great, man. Well, congratulations, brother. Like, uh, it's Thank you. like, it, it seems like you've been, uh, putting your nose to that grindstone ever since school and uh this you're, you're you're doing it man each of these steps each of these lessons that you're learning and sort of weeding yourself through the crazy you know leeches and vultures of our industry and and still being able to come out of the back end you know navigating a minefield yeah man it's just it's really nice to hear uh your your hard work success. You know what I mean? Like someone that's really okay. fucking working hard at it. And it may be a slower burn than, than people like to, you know, say like directors, like all of a sudden are geniuses and they're born this way. And next thing you know, they're making a movie. No, it, it takes time. It takes time to do this yeah. stuff. Um, and uh, what's nice. Are you excited? You get stuff on the horizon. You get stuff that you're putting together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always, I'm always trying to have the next five steps figured out. Um, there's a couple of things right now that I'm circling, and there's a couple I'm attached to that I'm, that I'm pretty stoked about. And so we'll see. I mean, you know, the, the movie just came out on Friday, um, so it's it's an interesting time, especially just in terms of trying to cast and put other things together. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I'm superstitious. I don't like, to, yeah, of course. I don't like to say too much, but, uh, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, finally, you know, I'll get some of the credit that I feel like I've, I've deserved for, for the hard work that I've done. And, you know, people will really walk away from Bandit and appreciate the performances and, and appreciate, um, just the, the sort of fun nature and energy of it all. That's great, you know? dude. Well, congratulations, brother. Thank you. I, I appreciate Sincerely, it. man. And um, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for putting up with our stop and right, stop. Technical and, troubles. It's all good. Listen, uh, it's like making a movie. Yeah, you can't brother. just go and go. It's like we gotta hit the reset button and go back to one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your patience. <laughs> um, and uh, thank you so much for being on the show, my man. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. I'll be I'll be back anytime you want me. Well, there it is. I made it. I made it through the interview. You know, there's nothing. I I, I want to thank Alan because I'm sure he may listen to the show. He's got a bunch of press that's going on. Hopefully he listens to this episode. If you're back in, uh, next time you're in California, next time you're in LA, Alan, reach out. Reach out and we can come in person and redo this with a real connection because i was feeling it i started to feel like you and i were really getting on and then uh this thing kept fucking dropping out on me and i have some serious come to jesus questions at this point with zencaster can i still continue to use you i don't know man today was epic in your failure with everything that's going on and i don't want to be the guy that's bitching about stuff but fuck i'm mad about it still um so anyway thanks everybody for listening and uh definitely stay tuned bunch of great episodes on the way lots of stuff i'm gonna leave you guys with a full track we'll play a full song here at the end and i'm gonna get off the mic and just go chill out and relax and just zen myself um thanks everybody for listening and i will see you next tuesday